Welcome to The Green Urbanist, the urbanism and sustainability podcast. I'm Ross. Today's episode is part one of a series about how climate change is affecting our cities. There are four episodes in this series coming out over the coming months with a different topic for each one. The topic of today's episode is heat. After that, we'll look at water in the form of rising sea levels, flooding and extreme wet weather. After that, I'll dive into how climate change is affecting our food on all levels, from the growth of individual plants to even our food system. And the final episode, will look at how our society is changing and how climate change is affecting migration, conflict and even our mental health. But right now, let's just jump into today's episode. We're going to look at how cities are already feeling the impact of heat and how things will be getting worse. But it's not going to be a totally depressing episode. I will offer some case studies throughout of how cities are rising to the challenge and some thoughts on addressing the underlying issues. But before that, let's have a quick recap on what it means when we say degrees warming. I'll use this phrase throughout the podcast, and you've probably heard it before, maybe in the news. One degree of warming, two degrees of warming, etc. What does this mean? Why is it important? Essentially, it's a way of measuring the effect of fossil fuel emissions on global temperature. So the Paris Agreement, which most developed countries have signed, states that we will aim for no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming from pre-industrial levels and stay well below 2 degrees of warming. To put that in perspective, we are already at 1.1 degree of warming. And so we are experiencing the beginning effects of climate change now. And that doesn't leave us much wiggle room to meet our target. In fact, if we continue down our current emissions path, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, predicts four degrees of warming by 2100. What does that mean? Four degrees Celsius sounds totally insignificant, but the effect of all that extra heat is actually enormous. Let's look at an example. You may remember back in 2003, there was a terrible heat wave in Europe that killed 35,000 people. At four degrees of warming, that will be a normal summer. Now, four degrees assumes we continue business as usual. I don't see that happening, but even with good progress, we will still likely hit about two degrees of warming over the next few decades, meaning that the scale of that heat wave, which was an exceptional once-in-an-era event, will become much more common and much more expected. Other parts of the globe will fare even worse, with already sweltering regions of India and Pakistan getting hotter every year and suffering heat waves. So how can we adapt to this? I mean, some countries already do better with the heat um, by using air conditioning systems. In Saudi Arabia, for example, 700,000 barrels of oil are burned each day during the summer, mostly to power the country's air conditioning. In most of Europe, air conditioning hasn't been necessary. But if extreme heat becomes the norm, we may need it just to survive, meaning a huge increase in energy use. Perversely, the more fossil fuels we burn now, the more we will have to burn in the future to adapt to the resulting extreme weather. I mean, air conditioning already accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions. Some estimates predict that demand will triple or quadruple in the next 30 years. And of course, that may be a band-aid solution for wealthy parts of the planet, but some of the hottest places in the world are also the poorest, and so it's simply not a viable solution to air condition large parts of the planet. It's also worth pointing out that increased temperatures has a negative effect on productivity, and many estimates say that the increasing heat will experience because of climate change will have a significant effect on our city's gross domestic product in coming decades. 
So I mentioned before the European heatwave of 2003. During that, France was hit particularly badly. And afterwards, the French government immediately started mitigation plans for future heatwaves. In the summer of 2019, when the country suffered another heatwave, Paris employed some interesting urban design solutions. Before we jump into that, it's worth mentioning that the reason large cities like Paris fare so badly in heatwaves is because of something called the urban heat island effect. Cities are covered in concrete, asphalt, steel and glass, and these materials store up heat during hot weather and actually increase the air temperature in cities. It is not uncommon for the centre of large cities to be 5 degrees Celsius higher than the surrounding countryside. In fact, Paris can be up to 10 degrees hotter, making an already sweltering summer day dangerously hot. So if man-made materials increase heat, then surely natural materials can help to cool cities down, or at least reduce this heat island effect. That's true, so at the core of, the, of Paris's response to the heat wave last summer was making sure residents had access to this natural source of cooling. Um, the opening hours of parks were extended, many of them open 24 hours, 7 days a week. In the longer term, the city is looking to replace as much hard surfaces as possible by installing green roofs, using permeable surfaces on streets and planting trees. Trees are actually a great way of staying cool because they provide not only shade, but also moisture, creating a kind of cooling vapour. Paris is taking this idea a step further and has plans to create microforests of densely planted trees on small urban sites throughout the city, creating what they call islands of freshness. Another really interesting part of Paris's approach is the use of water. So um, anyone who's taken a dip in the sea on a summer's day knows that the powerful cooling effect of water. And if you've been to Paris, you probably have noticed that many of the public squares have these beautiful water fountains. Well, these permanent fixtures of the city already function to cool the air, uh, chill the air, cooling people with their mist. And in some places, people actually get in the water. So to boost this, the city installed misting machines in public squares and retrofitted fire hydrants to create mist and to provide drinking water. The use of water is no doubt effective for cooling people down, but water is a limited resource. The next topic I'm going to talk about is the effect climate change and heat is having on water shortages. We call Earth the blue planet, but of all the water on Earth, only approximately 0.007% is both fresh fresh water that we can drink and accessible to us. There really isn't that much of it. And yet, technically this much fresh water should be plenty for all of our needs. But access to fresh water around the, around the world is hugely unequal. Currently, 2.1 billion people around the world don't have access to safe drinking water and 4.5 billion don't have safely managed water for sanitation. This lack of access is a problem that exists outside of climate change. It's a result of poverty, yes, but also bad politics, a lack of investment or maintenance, and overpopulation in the wrong places. So we have this absolutely essential resource that is not properly managed at all, and then comes along climate change and makes the problem much worse. So what effect is climate change having on our water supply? Well, as the temperature of the planet is rising, freshwater sources that we've relied on for centuries are evaporating and drying up. For instance, the Aral Sea in Central Asia, once the fourth largest lake in the world, has lost 90% of its volume just in recent decades. And it's not just water bodies. Some cities rely on a steady rhythm of glacial meltwater, replenishing water sources in the summer, with the glaciers reforming in the winter, 
But now glaciers are simply melting, meaning this very important water source is running out. In fact, the United Nations predict by 2050 that 5 billion people will not have safe access to fresh water. Now, we typically think of water scarcity as being a problem uh, of the developed world, say in parts of Africa, conjuring familiar images of um, rural villagers travelling for miles and miles to the nearest well every day. And certainly this is true. However, it is often not a problem of poverty, but a failure of politics. I visited Nigeria a few years ago and spent some time in a city called Ibadan. Right in the centre of the city is an old informal organic settlement that's built up over the years bit by bit. About two million of the city's poorest residents live there, with no running water, open sewers and often no toilets. This is not because of the underlying climate. Ibadan is, is not in a desert or a dry climate. In fact, one in three days during the year are rainy and the city often has problems with flooding during the rainy season. Nor is it a problem really due to a lack of resources. Nigeria is the 27th largest economy in the world and the largest in Africa. So within the country exists the resources to provide water to people as a basic resource, but it doesn't happen. It's a failure of politics. And as the climate changes and this region of Nigeria gets hotter and drier, it will get harder and harder for people to access any water at all. We're not immune to this problem in the rainy UK either. The Environment Agency last year gave a stark warning that London and the southeast of England will face severe water shortages by 2040. Again, this seems to be only partly fueled by climate change. In fact, the main causes are a growing population and an old inefficient system of water pipes that is riddled with leaks. I've read one estimate online that London's pipes are leaking 500 million litres of water a day. Add on top of these problems the fact that climate change is reducing the annual rainfall in England, rainfall that's needed to fill reservoirs, and you've got all the ingredients for severe water shortage. So what's the solution to this? Well, firstly, we need to fix these leaks, right? I mean, that much is obvious, and water companies are putting more resources into this, but... Short of replacing thousands of kilometres of pipes is not really a problem with an easy or quick solution. Uh, so why not build more reservoirs? Well, water companies have been trying to build new reservoirs in the southeast for decades, but a complicated and drawn-out regulatory and planning system, coupled with fierce local opposition, has prevented this essential infrastructure from coming forward. It also doesn't help that in the 1980s, when the water company for the area, Thames Water, was privatised, it sold off 25 of its reservoirs, Another potential solution is to build a system to connect parts of northern England that have a water surplus with the southeast. But this is far from a quick fix, as it takes decades to get these large infrastructure projects through the political and planning system, and then just as long to actually build the thing. So the solution we're left with is the UK government and the Environment Agency begging people to use less water in their day-to-day -day lives. Because the structural barriers to a technical solution are so high, the onus is put on the end users, the consumers and citizens, to make do with an adequate infrastructure in the face of climate change. Now don't get me wrong, it is prudent for all of us to use less water, and certainly not to waste water. But how about providing grants for people to retrofit buildings with rainwater harvesting, and homes with high efficiency fixtures? Just something to think about. <clears throat> Within these two examples is the lesson that if there are cracks in our society, climate change will find them and wrench them open. If there is inequality in access to resources like water, then the effect of climate change is to widen that gap even more. I'm moving on now to 
look at an effect of climate change and an effect of heat in particular that I'm sure many of you have been will be surprised about. And this is the connection between heat and crime rates. It is well documented in criminology and sociology literature that there is a correlation between warmer weather and an increase in crime rates, specifically relating to violent crime and property-related crime. When you think about this, it may, may actually seem like common sense. Remember the last time there was a summer heat wave? <clears throat> you probably had moments when the heat made you irrationally irritated and angry. You were probably annoyed with the people around you for things that, in a normal situation, wouldn't bother you at all. Now imagine you're someone who is already inclined towards violence and criminal behaviour. The addition of this hot weather may be enough to push you over the edge and to assault someone. Researchers have found evidence to support this idea. A classic study from 1976 found male subjects were more likely to provide an electric shock to someone who just gave them a negative evaluation if the ambient room temperature was increased. But interestingly, this phenomenon does not just occur during very hot weather, and it does not just increase the rates of violent crime. When there is unusually mild winter weather, there is often a corresponding spike in property-related crimes, such as burglaries. One of the theories behind this is that certain weather conditions contribute to the ideal conditions for committing certain crimes. So on a mild winter night, uh, a household may decide that instead of staying in as they usually would, they'll take advantage of the nice weather and go out for the evening. An enterprising thief may then use the opportunity to burgle the house. Now, I don't mean to scare you. It isn't like there's someone constantly watching your house, waiting for the right weather to strike. The observed increase in crime levels is small, maybe 2 or 3% of an increase. But it is statistically significant, and over a large population, it does result in a noticeable increase in crimes. But how does this relate to climate change? Well, hotter summers and milder winters are exactly the effects of climate change we are experiencing now and will continue to experience more and more because of climate change. Does this mean that we will see a general increase in crime rates uh, because of the consistently warmer weather? And how bad will it be? A study from Harvard in 2012 asked this very question. It looked at the correlation between temperature and crime in the United States and then estimated the future increase in crime linked to climate change over the next century, from the year 2010 to 2099. This study presumed a global temperature increase over that time of 2.8 degrees Celsius. The study found that the United States will experience an additional 35,000 murders, 216 cases of rape, 1.6 million aggravated assaults, 2.4 million simple assaults, 409,000 robberies, 3.1 million burglaries, 3.8 million cases of larceny and 1.4 million cases of vehicle theft compared to the total number of offences that would have occurred otherwise between the years 2010 and 2099 in the absence of climate change. The present value of the social costs of these climate-related crimes is between 20 and $68 billion. These figures sound incredibly scary. But there's a few things to bear in mind. I mean, the US is a very large country, and it also has a high base crime rate compared to other developed countries. And we're talking about a very long period of time, over 90 years. So even though the percentage increase across these various crimes is only 1 or 2 or 3%, the, the overall result is quite staggering. Now, the author of the paper does concede 
that the analysis doesn't take into account our potential adaptation to warmer weather and increased crime rates. For instance, we may see increased crime in the short term, but then our behaviour and policing practices could adapt to combat the increase, meaning that in the end, uh, the change in crime levels may be nowhere near as bad as this paper suggests. Or perhaps society does not adapt well to climate change in the coming decades, resulting in greater and greater levels of inequality and an increase in crime beyond even what this study estimates. Only time will tell. So what do we do about this? I mean, this is clearly a problem that goes well beyond urban planning and design. What this points to is the need for deep collaboration across society, and particularly in cities, as we tackle this problem we call climate change. In the last episode, I spoke about the need for cities to foster this collaboration and bring all the various actors together. But at the time, it didn't occur to me that the police should be part of that discussion as well. But clearly they do, because they will have to adapt their practices to climate change too. We love talking about design interventions and renewable energy and infrastructure projects, but our response to climate change needs to encompass much more than that, because the problem will reach into every aspect of our lives in ways we can't predict. Well, that's it for part one of this mini-series on how climate change is affecting cities. I may have left you with more questions than answers, but hopefully you're a bit more informed than when we started. I certainly learned a lot putting together this episode. All the sources for this episode are linked in the description if you want to do any further reading. And if you like the episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at GreenUrbanPod and Instagram at GreenUrbanistPod, where you'll find additional content and news. Thanks.